If you are an avid reader or an avid student of literature, whatever it is, you understand that many of the great novels, many of the great literary works have this really cool opening line to the novel. And just to kind of recall some of these opening lines, immediately you know exactly which one it is. This is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. You guys can figure that out. Call me Ishmael. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. For me, one of my favorite books begins a little lighter. One of my favorite authors starts his book and one of his better novels with Big A, Little A, what begins with A, and Annie's Alligator, A-A-A. And three pages later, as we turn, you will get kind of the topic and the, the, certainly the title for the sermon, Big D, Little D, David Donald Do, Dreamed a Dozen Donuts, and a Duck Dog Too. And really, that's just to kind of get your attention. But there is something about that ABC book that always kind of stuck with me. It wasn't just learning the ABCs, but when you understand, one of the things that Dr. Seuss was trying to do is to get people to understand the difference and the distinction between a big A and a little a, between a lowercase d and a capital D. And what you're going to see, hopefully, this morning is that there is a subtle difference in a big letter and a little letter. And we're going to talk about that this morning. At times, and I say this not overly proud of myself, but at times I can be a little arrogant. I can kind of, you know, think of myself a little better than others and kind of look at choices and decisions people make and I kind of, ah, and I, and I kind of feel, I don't, not just feel good about myself, but, but I'm, a, I'm a little judgmental. And I don't know, maybe you all have those arrogant moments at times as well. Maybe you're better than me and you don't feel arrogant near as much, or maybe I'm just better than you and I've got cause to be arrogant. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But at times that attitude jumps into my heart when I read the Bible. And I will read stories and I will read accounts and I will watch things take place in the Bible and I just think to myself, why? And I look at some of God's people, and I look at the the, the situation they're in, I look at the perspective that they would have had, and I just get very, very judgmental. Why would they possibly do that? How on earth could they possibly think that was a good decision? How did two plus two somehow equal seven? It just doesn't make sense to me. I will look at the, I will go back to the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is littered with that. And I will look at the Israelites, and I will ask myself time and time again, how could they? 
having been enslaved, having been mistreated, having seen 10 pretty cool plagues, coupled with you know, the parting of the Red Sea, that, I mean, that's sort of a pretty good set of circumstances. How could they watch that and still grumble? How could they be a part of that? How could they get up in the morning and bask in the manna that God provided in the quail and the water from rocks and everything like that and still have the gall to say, you know, we'd have been better off back in Egypt. How could they look at the grapes that were brought in on big sticks for the land that they were going to inherit? Again, having seen all that God had done and say, nah, I don't think we can do it. How could they possibly be rattled after only 40 days and somehow think, we haven't seen Moses, we must have a gold calf? And I look at them and I watch, and it just, it bugs me to no end. I look at Samson. Now, Samson's big, so I don't know that I'm really going to say anything to his face if, if I see him in heaven. But I look at that and go, Samson, that physical strength, that capability that you have, the stories and, and everything like that, why did you tell Delilah? First of all, why did you marry her? Everybody knew she was no good, but, but I mean, why did you tell her that? I look at Judas. And I just want to shake my head and go, Judas, why? And then I look at my life and I realize that I've doubted. I've had fear. I've probably sold God out on occasion. And so I'm humbled by that. But I think the story that really gets to me the most, it's the story we're going to look at. It's a story that you're familiar with. After all, I mean... If you're kind of the guest preacher, you're not really supposed to do anything, you know, sudden movements or anything like that. But it's the one we'll find in Matthew chapter 26 or Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22 or John chapter 18. It's one, uh, and there are, there are accounts that are, in, that are in all of the Gospels. Not all the Gospels tell things, you know, they have all the, the specific details the same as the other, not because the story changes. Some people pick up on certain details and not. But this is one of those accounts that's in every one of them. And if you turn in your Bible, we'll just go with the one in Luke. Not that that's any, you know, super magical or anything like that. But go to Luke chapter 22, and it's the story about... The denial of Peter. Kind of a sad story, really. Actually, it's very, very sad. And as each of the, the gospel writers go through the account, and you know, it starts with this idea of it, we, we pick it up in the garden when Judas comes and Judas betrays Jesus. Having given Jesus the kiss, all of a sudden everything unfolds. And at some point, the Bible says, you know, again, as Jesus is kind of being carried away and kind of through this, this judicial process, if you will, we get to the point, and we get to there in chapter 22, and you can pick it up sometime there, oh, we'll call it kind of, you'll probably have a heading there, um, and the heading will talk about what happened. The heading will be there, you know, the, the denial of Peter. 
And the, the Bible picks it up, and, and here's what happens. Real quick, for those of you that don't remember, there are three separate situations in which, you know, again, you kind of have the crowd going where three people approached Peter and accused him of being with Jesus. In the first two accounts, it's a servant girl, or depending on what your translation is, a slave girl, meaning it was the, the, a young girl who was part of you know, the, the, the servanthood to the people there. It was not somebody of preeminent status or anything like that. This was not the authorities. This was not anything like that. This was just very simply a young girl. And then the Bible says another young girl accused him. And then it goes on to say that that a man accused him. In fact, and says, it's there in verse uh, 59 of chapter 22. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to say to him, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. And at this point in time, Peter says, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Each step of the way, Peter defiantly denies his association with Jesus. Now, in some ways, we shouldn't be shocked, right? Because Jesus told Peter, Peter, you're going to before, you know, the, you hear the crow or you hear the, the rooster, you are going to deny me three times. Peter was warned of that. We were warned of that as we read through the story. And, you, and as we look at it, and to me, one of the things I find absolutely fascinating is the Bible says in John that the girl that actually accused Peter wasn't just some random girl. It was actually a relative of the man who lost his ear, right? Because the Bible says, that's one of the, the other accounts we get. Now, John specifically says it was Peter that did it. Peter pulls out his sword, chops off the servant's ear. That's when Jesus grabs the ear, puts it back on. And the young, one of the young girls that accused Peter of being with Jesus is a relative of the one who lost the ear. And I look at all of this, and I'm just taken aback that it could happen. I'm taken aback by many things. I'm taken aback by the fact that they had Peter dead to rights. I mean, this was one of those things that if we were watching Dateline or if we were watching some show on TV and, and it was about to go to trial or anything, right, this is when a really, really good attorney would either have to look for some bizarre loophole or they would plead Peter out because they had him dead to rights. They knew how he talked. They knew who he was with. They knew that he was the one who had the sword and everything like that. There was no chance and to me, I find that fascinating in, in a lot of respects because what they had on Peter was facts, were facts. What they had on Jesus was falsehood. Jesus went through that process with nothing but lies and rumors and untruths being said about him. But what they accused Peter of, no, they were pretty spot on accurate. They had Peter dead to rights. Which to me, again, I find very, very fascinating that it was Jesus that went through the process of trial on the basis of lies. But we'll come back to that 
at some other point and at some other study. But as we watched through that, they had Peter dead to rights. And I just thought to myself, why? I am so shocked. Because you can go back to the beginning of the Gospels, and if you watch everything that Peter had gone through, every testimony, every sermon, Peter was, he, he was loved. He was embraced. He was rebuked. Peter had a front row seat of some of the coolest things that have ever happened. And not only that, but he was there and he understood that so much of what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was saying was there to confirm his deity. It wasn't just sort of random acts of, of miracles and, and fancy stuff and cool things to look at, that Jesus' purpose was to show that he was of God. And there Peter was, on the cutting edge of that, watching that. And somehow he still denied. And that term, and it, it's always bothered me. And what bothers me more, you know, the, as I kind of read about it and as I study it, is that for so many years, I've kind of missed out on some of the real meaningful parts of this passage. Because so many times, either I will teach it, I will read it, preach it, whatever that is, and we will look at this account, and typically we always go to this, this aspect of it, and we will look at this, and we will say, you know what, what it should teach us is a certain humility. What it te should teach us is not to be arrogant. What it should teach us is that there will be a situation, there can be a situation, there can be a moment when the risk is too great, the fear is too great, the, the circumstances, and the the loss, the embarrassment, whatever that is, could be so very great that even a grown man would be afraid of a little girl and say, no, that's not me. And that in our walk with God, we should never be so arrogant as to think that can't happen to us, that Satan can't align circumstances in such a way that I am, again, so worried, so fearful, so doubting that I would literally deny my very faith. Because the term deny is one of those really, really strong terms. I mean, it is a strong term. Deny involves refusing. On some level, it is re refusing to acknowledge, refusing to grant, refusing to provide, but it, it, it involves a choice. It is a conscious choice that somebody makes to refuse certain things. Your claim may be denied. Your job, your raise may be denied. We understand that's what it means denied, that somebody had the opportunity and for whatever reason, maybe because of policy, maybe because of preference, they said no. That's what it means to deny. And it's a term that we use only in certain circumstances. I mean, because it really is, it's out there at the very end of the spectrum to deny something. You kids remember that, or maybe, you, hopefully you do, otherwise you're just going to be a really messed up generation when your folks denied a request. They denied the extra half hour, they denied the extra hour or whatever it was, but they made that decision. Parents, we understand what that's like to weigh the facts and say, no. But we also understand that we live in an age where we are suffering the consequences of things when things get denied. When justice is denied, oh, we get all worked up. 
when grace, hospitality, or when all that is, is denied, we get pretty worked up. When basic family atmosphere is denied. And when accountability in our social system is denied, it really has a chance and it really does mess things up. But as strong as that word deny is, and, and that's, the, that's the big word, that's the capital D. That's the capitalized word, deny. Because once it gets to that, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? And we see those circumstances. Once something is denied, and again, not just sort of you know, in process and procedure and anything like that, we know what that's like when it comes to people. We know what that's like when it comes to situations. Um, I have been at Northside long enough to play a very uncomfortable game. And you know the game that I'm about to talk about. There's nothing fun about it. It's heartbreaking. It is gut-wrenching. And it's like this sadistic game of bingo where you will be kind of in a group And for some reason, the Spirit will sort of cause one of us to ask, whatever happened to, and then we'll fill in the blank with a name, whatever happened to that family? We don't see them anymore. Whatever happened to that couple? They're not together anymore. Whatever happened to so-and-so, brother this or sister that? Well, they're not going anywhere else. And it is, like I said, heartbreaking and gut-wrenching when things get to that point that someone denies. I have traveled enough that I've encountered people in the airport. And one of the most awkward people to ever encounter in the airport is somebody that doesn't come like they used to. Or maybe somebody that used to come and it's, it's the elephant in the room, and I'll usually kind of let it go for just a while, let it go, let it go, because they're getting uncomfortable. And then I'll finally do that, hey, we, we miss you. We haven't seen you in a while. And I mean that sincerely, both to make them uncomfortable, but also I want them to know that we miss them. Denial, when it gets to that point, is unmistakable. But what I want you to notice, as we look at Luke chapter 22... That we, again, we shouldn't be shocked, not just because Jesus said it was going to happen, but what I want you just to go back and go just a few verses up to verse 54. Or if you're in Matthew, you can go to verse 58. If you are in Luke chapter 20, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 14, you can go to verse 54. And one of the things that you will see is the little d. And that is, as all of this unfolds, now remember who we're talking about. We're talking about Peter. We are not talking about, you know, the ones that we get to kind of at the end and, and the, you know, we struggle in VBS to remember their names and or like, oh, okay, there's 12. I know who am I missing? Who am I missing? And everything like that. You know, we get, oh, we get Peter, James, John. We get those really quick, don't we? You know, it wasn't one of those names. This was the one that said, God, you know, or Jesus, May it never be that you would be sacrificed. Again, the one that pulled out the sword, the one that wanted to make you know certain errors, the one that was concerned about who was going to be the greatest, the one that was involved in all of that. 
And it says in verse, verse 54, the one who said, I will not leave you. I will not depart from you. It says in verse 54, and again, the other two passages say it as well. It says, but Peter. Now, use of the word but is very, very important. That's an important transition. It's not just, you know, like a little comma or anything like that. It's to call our attention to the idea that with this going on, what happens here? Peter was following at a distance. As the guards came and grabbed Jesus, as they began to sort of shuttle him through this this mock jury, this mock trial, everything like that, the Bible says, as that unfolds, the, the zealot, the one that was always right there, the one that was always in the middle. There were times probably when, you know, I mean, we know that Jesus pushed away to be by himself from time to time. But if ever there was a time, you know, that Jesus turned around, Peter was probably there. And the Bible says in verse 54, but Peter followed at a distance. All of a sudden, the one that walked the fastest when he was with Jesus Walk just a little bit slow. All of a sudden, the one that was right in the middle of everything kind of laid back and wasn't in the middle of things. And so it shouldn't cause us, you know, we shouldn't be confused, we shouldn't be surprised at all that when it finally could, because, and that's how things proceeded. He was not the friend that, you know, kind of you see on TV, I'll get you a good attorney, I'm with you there, or anything like that. He, no, he just kind of backed off. And kind of faded into the backdrop. And the Bible says it would, but for the fact that three random people came up to him accusing him, would he even have been a part of things? And I tell you that because this morning what I want you to understand is the difference between big D and little d. We always want to talk about the big D, denial. We want to talk about that because that is, it is so, it's obvious, it is dramatic, it is big, it is offensive, whatever that is. We will always talk about that, but what the Bible wants us to understand is a truism that is implicit to so many stories in the Bible, distance leads to denial. The more distance you create between you and God, between you and your relationships, between you and your family, between you and your spouse, the more distance you create, eventually that can lead and typically will lead to denial. The more you distance yourself from the love of God, the more you distance yourself from the person that he wants you to be, the more you distance yourself from loved ones, the the more the closer you become to making this choice to leave, which is just a nice way of saying to deny. And the Bible is full of those stories. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, when we look at, we look at the evil of mankind, what the Bible tells us is that evil did not happen overnight. That the entire universe didn't just wake up one day and said, we are going to be evil. Noah and his family somehow didn't get the memo, didn't get the email, whatever that was. They chose to go a different direction. Instead, what the Bible says is over time, 
there was this kind of intermarrying with those that didn't believe until at some point in time, the distance became so great, so far from God, that the only way that it could be described is that mankind's heart was to do evil continually. As we look at the book of Judges, the book of Judges, which follows the book of Joshua, we see in the very beginning what happened was they got further and further from God. It didn't happen overnight. But we always pick up the story when we get to the denial. We pick up the story when it was horrible, when it was bad, when there was, you know, it was just too late or anything like that. But what we miss out is that there was distance that was created. And I tell you that because this morning, in very simple terms, I only have two goals this morning as I talk to you. It's the same two goals for me, but it's two goals, you know, as I speak to you. The goal number one is I want you to encourage yourself to gauge the gap and shorten the distance. That's still just number one. Sorry about that. To gauge the gap. Because again, if you go to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, one of the things the Bible says is, as he's speaking to the people, it says, the Lord said, because these people, notice what he says, draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, they remove their hearts far from me. The issue that was happening here is that they were not being condemned. Yes, there were some behavior issues. There was some big D denying issues that they needed to deal with. But what God is trying to get them to understand is, you know, through the the prophet is that the frustration came with the idea that it looked like they were close. It looked like they were doing the right things. But their heart just wasn't there. This morning, I want you to gauge the gap between you and God. And we could ask pretty simple questions just to get you to think through that. And I could turn it into, hey, do you come to worship as often as you used to? If the answer is no, then you've got a little D going on. Because each time you don't, and again, it's not to say that we come a certain amount of times and that gets us into heaven. No, it's not that at all. But when we come, we close the gap if our hearts are in the right place. Do you pray as often as you used to? Not because prayer in and of itself is the thing that gets us into heaven, but do you talk to God? And as you talk to God, do you talk to him about the same things, or do you find yourself, if you remember, when you remember, talking about food and superficial things, And that's just about it. I want you to ask in a tough way where your heart is and the gap with your family. You know, we're going into the family week, Thanksgiving. And oh, we'll get everybody together and we'll do those kinds of things. But here's my question. Are you as committed to your kids, your parents, your spouse, as you used to be. 
Oh, we'll talk about it as, you know, the fire that was there, you know, and on the, the, the day of the wedding and everything like that. It's just the, the commitment. The, and, and that's one I'd really like to emphasize even more. But, you know, the Bible says in Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor. Now, the Bible goes on to talk about fornication and how that enters into the marriage. But just, just stop, not that I'm avoiding that, but just stop just on that one statement Marriage is held in honor. Is it held in honor with you the same way that it used to be? Or is there distance being created? Because I'm also old enough to know the breakdown of the family, to know people, to have friends that go through that. Went through, there were several people that worked for me. In Atlanta, went through that. It, it, was, it, was, it was horrible. And again, because it, we talk with a big D, not the little distance. I had the occasion to have to fire somebody, uh, a couple of people. And it was, on some levels, interesting, fascinating. They had pulled together this really neat scheme to steal from us. Um, and it was kind of ingenious in a way. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't you know, huge or anything. like It was big enough. And what they stole was kind of like the last thing. I mean, it was sort of like one notch above stealing copy paper, I think. I mean, this, and someday I'll tell you about it, but we, we were live streaming, and so I've got to be careful, I guess. Anyways, um, but they had kind of developed, there were a couple of them working together. And it was kind of ingenious, you know, kind of the way they had done it and everything like that. And we just caught it by accident. And I was, you know, again, angry and tickled all at the same time. I don't know what Elmo looks like on Tickle Me, Anger Me, Elmo, but that's what Jim was that day. And I said to myself, you know, I'm, I'm going to go talk. I, I've, I want to be there. Not because I wanted to bring retribution or anything like that a little bit, but I, I just had a couple of questions. And so, and one of the questions I had, and, and one was a sarcastic and one was legitimate. Uh, the sarcastic question was, do you realize if you had taken half that effort into doing your job right, you would have been employee of the month for the next two years? It really was impressive. And, I, and it was sarcastic, but it was true. But the real question I had for him was, when did it start? And, you know, when you had the math there and you could look in the, you know, the spreadsheet, I said, no, no, I don't, not that. When did it start in your mind? And what he described to me that it had, it had been conceived, it started about a year before the first piece was ever stolen. And it isn't because it took a year to pull this off. It's just that's when the seed got planted. That's when all of a sudden the integrity to the job was less important. And what he finally said was, I knew I was going to do something. I was just waiting for the opportunity. And, and, and I, I say that this morning because I know that I'm speaking to people because we all go through that. Where the gap between us and God 
is just a little further than it should be. And a lot further than God would have it to be. And certainly more, a little further than we would like. And the only difference between the little D becoming the D, big D, is just that opportunity. It's just a matter of time. We watch the National, if National Geographic teaches us nothing. It's the zebra that's off by itself. The zebra that pulls from the herd. That's the one they get. Whether it be a gator and lion or anything like that. So point number one, I want you to look at your gap and work to close it. Because it is one of those things that it is personal. And you are probably struggling with it now. But the, the second thing I want to do is I want to help dry some tears this morning. If you look at the passage in Luke chapter 22... In fact, if we wanted to, let's go to, let's go to Matthew for this one, because I like the way Matthew words it in Matthew chapter 27, because we know that it got to Peter. But here's the thing that I want you to see, and that it is incredibly sad. We are in Matthew, excuse me, 26. It's up on the screen. I just said it wrong. After the third denial, after Peter hears the cock crow, recognizing that it's the dawn, after Peter realizes what he has done, the Bible says he wept immediately. Now, the passage in Matthew is even just a little bit stronger because what Matthew says is he went out and he wept bitterly. He didn't just simply cry. cry I mean, there is crying that goes on. There's natural remorse. There's, there's loss. There's things like that. There is crying that takes place, and that's a natural part of what we are. It, it, it's, it's us feeling. It's us emotion. But there's something about this weep that is unnatural, and it is not something that God wants us to experience. But it is the weeping, it is the crying that only comes with denial. There is a crying, there is a weeping that only comes when you are separated from God and you know it. There's a crying that comes when you look at yourself and you recognize, I messed up. And what's fascinating about that is it's always a crying that takes place in private. And some of you may know exactly what I'm talking about. Because that's not the weep that we do in front of people. Oh, we will weep for loss. We will weep for sad things. We will weep for this or that. But the bitter weep that only comes when we're separated from God... And what I want you to know is those tears don't have to exist. The Bible talks about how every tear can be dried. Every tear will be dried when we get to heaven. But the best part about this story about Peter 
And I, we'll get you going. I'm going a little long, and I apologize somewhat for that. But as we look at the life of Peter, the best part of this is the way the story ends. This same person that had hit this kind of a low, that whipped this kind of be, wept this kind of bitter, is the one that stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, "He is risen, and we're a part of something big." This is the same person that was right there on the front row of watching everything that God was doing in the book of Acts. This was the person that was right there that saw firsthand that God's love wasn't just for the Jews, it was now for the Gentiles. And it was to this person that God entrusted the taking of the message. It was this person that was given the ability to heal Dorcas, otherwise known as Tabitha. The story didn't end just with the weeping in comparison to the story of Judas, who wept and it didn't end well. Or the story of the rich young ruler, who was saddened because of a choice he couldn't make, and it didn't end well. So the question is, I guess it's not even a question, it's not even an invitation It's an appeal. Let the Lord help you not weep. And you ask, Jim, how did that happen? How does someone go from that kind of a high, that kind of a low, to that kind of a high again? I think we'll sing about it here in just a second. It's very simply known as there's power in the blood. If you've got a need, won't you come while together we stand and sing?